So um, as the Tiesman family, Julie and the kids, uh, showed us, today is the second candle of Advent, and it is the candle of peace. So there's hope and peace and joy and love. And um, so it's the second candle, and so this week we talk about peace. And I, I just want to go ahead and give you the end of this morning's teaching right up front. It's a singular point, and I just want to give you the, the end of the story of what I'm going to teach right up front, and it's this. If you and I want peace, if we want peace in our life, our personal life, and for the world, then we need the habit of Sabbath. We need the habit of Sabbath. We need to cultivate Sabbath. So, we'll get to that. We're going to read, uh, if you have your Bible with you, Luke chapter 1, verses uh, 67 through 79. And uh, we're going to hear Zachariah's prophecy over his newborn son, John. Yes, that's John who becomes John the Baptist. And Zachariah is the father of John. He's older, he and his wife Elizabeth. And uh, John is Jesus' cousin by uh, six months older than him. And Zachariah was struck speechless when he doubted the angel Gabriel's announcement to him that his son John would be the prophetic forerunner calling the nation of Israel to repentance with the advent of the Messiah, that is Jesus Christ. Old Zechariah is giving a forced habit. <laughs> he's given a habit he did not choose when he's struck dumb by uh, God to give him some time to think about why he doubted God and why he needed to put things together. And not being able to speak, I'm going to call that a forced Sabbath. And he does put it all together after the rest of the uh, pregnancy and John is born. And he does. And he names his son John. And his newly loosened tongue makes this announcement. Luke chapter 1 verses 67 through 79. Gospel of Luke. Then his father, John's father, Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke this prophecy. And he says this, verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty Savior for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Thus, he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and has remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And then it turns to focus on his son. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. To give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins. By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the way of peace. Today's candle. So there's a lot in here. There's a lot of background in here. And it does us well to understand as much of it as we can. So peace. And I'm going to say that we in our day and age, you could agree with me to various degrees if you wish, but I think we seem to lack peace in our world, and we seem to have lacked it for quite some time. Matter of fact, I think we kind of live in a, in a, in a world of doubt 
and in a world of fear and in some sort of angry competition and all sorts of other things that are mixed up, particularly coming out of a pandemic and so forth and something that I call social intimacy trauma and a bunch of other things are going on and it makes us very fearful and we're not very peaceful. And so I don't know if you agree with me or not. That's, we could all sit around and have our opinion about it. But peace was Israel's dream. The Hebrews had been enslaved and oppressed, sold off, tortured, and crushed for over 700 years. Can you imagine? Our country's going to be coming up on its 250th year. And we have never been oppressed by another nation or another empire. We've never been had soldiers standing on every corner telling you to pick this up and carry it or anything else like that. But Israel's endured that for at least three or four times our own history. Can you imagine? Much of the Old Testament is Israel's tale of slavery and exile from home and invading nations running over them time and time again. And now, during Zechariah's time, Jesus' time, there was the crushing Roman Empire with their slavery and their oppressive armies and their taxes. When will peace come? 700 years. Good news, Zechariah prophesies. The dawn from on high will break upon us and guide our feet into the way of peace. It's now here. It's coming. Now, this idea of John and his message, this coming messenger before the Messiah, was deeply embedded in Israel's, uh, in their thinking and in their, their whole idea of relief. The idea of the messenger coming to announce the good news and prepare the way of the Lord is repeated throughout the Old Testament from the prophets all the way back to Isaiah, which would have been about 700 years earlier, just thereabouts. In Isaiah, in uh, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, it says, prepare the way of the Lord. Uh, and then finally, in the very last book of the Old Testament, in its arrangement, is Malachi. And depending on where you want to date that, say it's the 4th century, the very last words there in Malachi um, Chapter 3, Malachi says, See, I am sending my messenger to prepare, prepare the way before me. And which answers the question right before that from the end of chapter 2, uh, Malachi 2.17, which says, Where is God's justice? And Malachi says, It's coming. The messenger is coming for the Messiah. Over and over, this is a Jewish expectation at the time of Jesus. When will we ever see peace in our time? So on that holy uh, silent night, the first Christmas, the shepherds keep watch over their flocks and the angel of the Lord appears and announces this good news. To you this day is born a Savior and suddenly a host of heaven joins the angels and sings, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace, peace among those whom he favors. Peace on earth has finally come to the Jews with the birth of Jesus, the Messiah. Of course, the nation doesn't know about Jesus because he's just in backwater Bethlehem being born in a manger and nobody knows what is to come, not for another 25 years, 28, 30 years. Funny thing is, though, it really doesn't take a PhD in history or anything to figure out that during Jesus' ministry and really for the next 200 years, you know, after Jesus, that the Roman Empire continues to crush and oppress the Jews. Where's the peace that was announced? And, and Christians, too, are wondering the same thing. If there's one big, huge disconnect for all of this these days, it would be to tend, the, tend to, the, 
We tend to dream of Jesus, Mary and Joseph, like this cute, befuddled family living a normal life. They're holy. They wear nice clothes. They've got money in their pocket. And they're just sort of good suburbanites in their first century world. And the little nativity scene sits on the mantle, you know, or the coffee table or whatever. But in reality, the holy family was living a nightmare as a citizen at that time. They would be just like a citizen of Gaza even today, traveling, not knowing where their next meal is coming from. They're sick. They've been hurt. Uh, and don't forget that Joseph had to take Mary and Jesus and flee to Egypt within the next year or two to avoid King Herod killing off all the children in Bethlehem. Basically, the Holy Family are refugees. They've left their country and their home. I've sat around and wondered. I wonder how Joseph made a living. He's a carpenter. I guess he could pick that up anywhere down in Egypt. Remaining, where's the peace? Where's the peace? Well, as Jesus declared at his trial before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, he says, my kingdom's not of this world. So if you want to try and put this together, it's a heavenly peace. And it apparently, if not literally, is not in front of their faces. The peace Jesus brings is a peace for one's soul, which we can all have this day. Peace begins within the heart of each one of us. And if we want peace during our own time, it begins with the words of Jesus right there famously in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11. And you may not know the reference, but you'll know the words. Come to me, all you that are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burdens light, Jesus tells us, if we would only believe it. So I know it's common belief these days, y'all, that we think we're living in the most violent times of human history, that we're living in with acts of terrorism and shootings and, and uh, all the violence going on, and we think that it's the worst time of all. But statistically, statistically, we live in the very, very most peaceful time of human history. Even, even in all of the violent places around the world, even with Israel-Palestinian war in Gaza and the Ukrainian war and all of that, even with all that included, we live in the most peaceful time in human history. It's amazing to think. And if you live in America, you have won the lottery. Have you not heard that before? You won the lottery if you're born in America. You've got everything. You don't have soldiers standing on the corner. But not for Joseph and Mary and the newborn Jesus. They did not win a thing. They lost everything. So I really don't believe I'm making a pointed cultural critique here or anything like that. But I will now. Because information is so immediate. Because the world is so immediate and the media has become so sensationalized that the, great, the latest flood is the greatest flood ever, you know, so they can sell advertising. And, um, you know, or that the latest shooting is the most gruesome or that the latest economic statistic is, you know, the final nail in the coffin of the world and we're all going to hell in a handbasket and all this sensationalism. It feels like we're living in the most terrible of times. Mostly because somebody's trying to sell something. So if that isn't a cynical comment out of the pastor today, I don't know what is. But we're not. We're not living in the most terrible of times. Not by a long shot. We live in a society where we have one of the highest standards of living. And we're scared. 
we're scared. We don't have peace. Well, I can't do anything and you can't do things really about the sensationalized media or politicians capitalizing on fear mongering or whatever. But as a soul doctor, I can prescribe something that you may find rest for your soul and make your burden light, as Jesus says. And the answer to a fear-filled culture is found all the way back in the Bible's creation. Sabbath, a day of rest. Genesis chapter 2, right at the beginning of the Bible. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all their multitudes. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work he'd done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 and 3. The old rabbis, the old Jewish rabbis, said that creation was not complete until God had rested. That actually resting was a part of the creation process, if you want to kind of mix it up there a little bit. Because what God created on the seventh day was the Hebrew word for rest, which is, I apologize in a moment, manua. That's right. The Hebrew word for rest is manure. So um, manuha, if you want to kind of stretch it out so it doesn't sound so funny. Now, you will probably remember that now for the rest of your Christian life, that the word, Hebrew word for rest is manua. Um, but well before Moses and the Torah in the 1400s, uh, and the Ten Commandments, well before that, rest was built into the design of the world. Humans are meant to rest. The ground goes fallow. Here we are in December. The ground goes fallow, right? The plants go dormant. The animals hibernate. Heart rate's slow, unless the Chiefs game's on. Temperatures drop, and the days shorten. The whole world rests. It's built into creation. And you and I were designed for rest. Or as Jesus phrased it, the Sabbath was made for humankind and not humankind for the Sabbath, Mark chapter 2. Many spiritual authors these days are diagnosing that our society has this thing. This is really from the 4th century antiquity, which is my specialty. Um, the 4th century uh, Christians had a term for it, and the classic word for it is sloth. You know, like three-toed sloth, except not three-toed sloth. But sloth is a human condition. Classic sloth is not the same as laziness. Real sloth is defined as this. Being busy at no good thing. Sloth is being busy at no good thing. It's not rest. Hundreds of years ago, the ancient Christians recognized that a person can be scurrying from here to there, busy as can be, and have no genuine idea of why they are running around. Why are we so busy these days? More often than not, perhaps even at no good thing. Is it because we become nothing more than perhaps consumers? We know how to buy things, we know how to shop, we know how to look for advertisements. We are experts at looking at an ad or any sort of sales pitch and knowing within a few seconds, I mean seconds, figuring out if it's a good deal or a lousy deal. 
We are excellent at being consumers and we know how to work. Work is good. That's from God. We are excellent at entertainment and play. Play is good. We are excellent at materialism. There's nothing wrong with having things within limits. But when you stand around in the lobby in just a few minutes when we leave here, you will hear a very common little conversation go on that once again we are all experts at. And it's going to go like this. Hey, how are you doing? Oh, I'm tired. What you been up to? Oh, wow, man, I'm busy. I've been real busy. Super busy. Oh, yeah. And then what do you respond? Me too. Yeah, okay, see you next week. So, you know, and because we are experts at being busy, the question is, are we busy at any good thing? What is rest? What is Sabbath? Where is it built into our society and into our culture? I've been to China several times uh, working with the persecuted church, and a bunch of you have gone with me. And it never failed to hit me that as you're there for several weeks, what in China, there is no Sabbath. You just work seven days a week. And, it, and it, it, if, I don't even know how to describe it. There's sort of a numbing experience to it. You're like, you just do the same thing every day, every day, every day. There's nothing built in for rest. And I mean, they work long hours. Can you imagine a day where everyone just keeps working? I mean, a year after year after year after year after year. And you, you know, I mean, not to judge the Chinese people too much, but you begin to think, or at least their culture, but you begin to think like, where's the humanity? But it's probably just because I'm a Westerner and I'm Christian and I know what Sabbath is. Classic sloth, busy at no good thing. And in a strange way, being busy meant that we have a life, which is the really bizarre part. As though we're trying to impress each other with how busy we are. And yet, we're tired and we're angry. It's not living, is it? We need to come against this sloth of busyness, this laziness of not knowing what, what we're doing or why we're doing it. Instead, we need the time and the space to ask the God questions, right? A question like, what time is it? And I don't mean like, look at your watch. I mean, what age, what moment am I living in? What season of life am I in? What should I be enjoying? What should I be slowing down to? What are my priorities? What am I supposed to be doing? Why, what is the good thing I should be doing? Noted uh, Jewish scholar from the last century, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, perhaps you've heard of Heschel, writing about the Sabbath in his classic book called Sabbath, not a really creative title, uh, but he writes this. He says, how should we weigh the difference between the Sabbath and the other days of the week? When a day like Wednesday arrives, the hours are blank. And unless we lend significance to them, they remain without character. He says this, the hours of the seventh day, speaking of the Sabbath, are significant in themselves. Their significance and beauty do not depend upon any work, profit, or progress we may achieve. They have the beauty of grandeur, Heschel says. A holiness, a rest in love and generosity, a serenity, a tranquility, a security, a perfect rest with which thou art pleased, says Heschel. That's pretty lofty words for a day where we just don't do anything. Now, author Lauren Winters, a while back, uh, she was raised Jewish, converted to Christianity. 
And Lauren Winters writes this about Christians. She says, uh, to, 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 here's her concept of the Sabbath, the way she grew up. She said the Jewish idea of the Sabbath is a day not to create. A day not to create. No car repair, no house repair, no cooking, no artwork, no sports, no games. That's a rather strong concept of Sabbath rest. No creation. Because God didn't create on the Sabbath. Heschel doesn't think of the Sabbath uh, in such strict terms like Lauren Winter. Heschel states that the Sabbath is a day of abstaining from toil. Not to recover one's lost strength, but rather to become spiritually healthy. To become a soul again. To be reminded of who you belong to. Heschel says the Sabbath is a day of delight. It's different than all the other days of the week because it's a day to celebrate life. So it has a positivity to it in that it's celebrating life, to enjoy life. And that's why it's okay to watch the game. As long as you know that's what you're doing. You know what I mean? That it's a rest with some sort of purpose. I am doing nothing but eating this whole can of popcorn. Heschel says that without the Sabbath, the world becomes distorted to us and that God becomes distorted to us and we begin to use things. We begin to use God. We begin to expect things. God becomes a magician. We want a a genie who's going to give us just what we want. There's no relationship left. There's no place for Jesus. And we begin to use ourselves as objects of productivity. In other words, without the Sabbath, instead of becoming human beings, we become human doings. Who can be content in a spoiled world with a distorted God and a mechanical self-image? Soon enough, consumerism looks like the only good thing to do. Now, I'll say that again. Soon enough, consumerism looks like the only good thing that we could do. And it begins to define us and who we are. We need to make some courageous decisions about sports and entertainment and materialism and how we spend our days. And evaluate whether or not they're good or bad. And then decide where is the Sabbath fitting into our weekly rhythm. Into our spiritual rhythm. How will you do that? Will you take a walk this afternoon? Will you just take a nap this afternoon? Let's talk about rest. Will you just enjoy a good dish that really didn't take a ton of prep? Maybe you'll just sit and stare. <laughs> you know? Maybe you'll read your Bible. Maybe you'll just sit and think, why am I here? And why am I in love with God? What does the Sabbath rest look like for you, for your family? This entire Advent season on Sunday evenings when we all gather and you read the little book, you know, and maybe you play a game and um, you have some really cool snacks and you light the candle. And it's really short tonight if you looked at the, for all of you who participated last week in the Advent Uh, thing. And there's not much to it because the point isn't to learn something. The point is to experience something. Just, you just do it. It's not an educational moment because ultimately what you want, I'm going to speak to parents here for a moment of young children. Ultimately what you want is you want your children to say to you several years from now, you want them to say what my daughter said to us. She said, when she's probably about 12, she said, I get it. 
I understand that we do the entire life of Jesus all the way from Christmas all the way to Easter. So in one year, we understand the entire life of Jesus Christ. And then she said, so what's next? And I was like, ding, ding, ding. That was a big win. The church did the job for my kid that she understands the life of Jesus throughout an entire calendar year. And then she's ready for more discipleship after that. So that's what you're trying to lean into tonight. Take it easy. Take it restful. Don't worry about the fact that everything's freaking out and that you burn the cookies or whatever's going on. You know what I mean? It doesn't matter. Make it restful because you don't want your kids walking out saying like, I remember we burned the cookies, which actually could be kind of fun. But you know what I mean? But that their friends gathered and then they'll do that with their children someday. That's what you're after tonight. It's a Sabbath. And we wait and we watch and we listen for, for the coming of Christ on Christmas Eve. So you figure out what Sabbath looks like for you. And now it's Christmas time. Amen.